0: got a lot to say about the world i occupy every day but when i say what's on my mind i find i piss people off
1: you're listening to what the folk real talk and raw tunes for Revolutionary times i'm joy damiani
2: i'm sarah baronowskis
1: and our guest on this episode is carla bergman a mom, independent scholar, filmmaker, and podcaster. We're already autonomous.
3: We're already doing radical stuff. Joy already runs through our projects, um, and we always
1: have. Resistance has always worked alongside the oppression. We're really excited to share that conversation with you, but first, before we get started, if you've been enjoying what you've been hearing on What the Folk for almost an entire year now, Um, or however long you've been listening to us, please let us know with a five-star rating on iTunes, because that makes a lot of difference. Or, um, you know, subscribe to us, or write us a review if you have a few extra moments. Either way, we want to hear from you, because we love you. And now to set the tone for what I really felt like was an extremely uplifting and hopeful conversation Here's Carla Bergman reading an excerpt from Joyful Militancy.
3: Joy, in the way we define it in Joyful Militancy, isn't an emotion at all but a process that moves us away from conditioned habits, reactions, and emotions towards a collective thriving and justice for all. Joy is the thinking, feeling that arise from becoming capable of more. And often this entails feeling many emotions at once. Happiness is not joy. Under capitalism, happiness is a duty and unhappiness is a disorder. As consumers, we are encouraged to become connoisseurs with an ever more refined sense of what makes us happy. Joy is something else. Joy can be devastating, painful and dangerous. Joy has sharp edges.
1: bergman is a mom an independent scholar filmmaker and podcaster she is the co-author of joyful militancy ak press and edited radiant voices 21 feminist essays for rising up touchwood editions and is currently working on a book about youth autonomy and a few multimedia projects carla spends much of her time with the trees at the shoreline on oh i'm going to pronounce their name wrong
3: i think i sent it in their language too didn't i
1: you did, and it's, it's great. It's Squamish, Musqueam, and Sailor Toothlands. Thank you very much. Yes, and she lives with her partner and kids, and you can find Carla and more about her work on Twitter at Joyful Carla. Welcome, Carla. <laughs> Welcome to What the Folk. What the Folk. <laughs> I love it.
0: <laughs> where, where are
1: you all located?
2: Well, go ahead, Sarah. (laughs) Uh, I am currently just outside of Denver, Colorado.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, which is uh, Clackamas and Cowlitz territory, I believe. And um, yeah, so and we've been doing this all remotely pretty much since we started. Um, So that is essentially because we started during the apocalypse. You know, this is how (laughs) we make do And, uh, the way we like to sort of ease all of our guests in, um, is by asking you, uh, how is your apocalypse going? (laughs) Uh,
3: in a, in a word nuanced, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, um, not for everybody, but for, um, people who made at least $5,000 in 2019, Canada has done a pretty good job at, at supporting us, um, and I think for a lot of people, especially artists, um, there's there's been space to rest and to create. Um, probably shouldn't go public about that because Canada will be like, hey, but I mean, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm a film, mostly I make my living as a filmmaker and a curator of um, public speaking events, both of which I couldn't do. So I don't, you know, it was great to get that kickback. Um, so that's kind of like a, an important piece I think that maybe isn't getting amplified enough. Like we're pretty lucky. Um, We have a good medical system. Um, I live in, uh, in paradise, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Pacific Northwest. I mean, ocean, mountains, trees at my doorstep. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's just, you know, so I don't need money to uh, find the joy. Um, I, my, um, my oldest, moved to um, England in 2019 and you know I lost a piece of myself um but he came back cuz of the cuz of it so another <laughs> optimistic thing Obvious. um or positive <laughs> yeah and so we've um and <laughs> we were evicted twice in the past year um so oh, that was nice. hard yeah um i live in a you know alongside the beauty here and my friends and the um and all that i live in a a city on steroids when it comes to uh, development and um, gentrification and uh, developers are really reaping off of it here um, even more so Mm -hmm. Um, yeah so i mean it's nuanced it's i'm sad a lot i my phrase for this year is that i I have mel i'm melancholic like melancholy joy um, not militant joy. I feel pretty melancholy all the time. Um, melancholy hope, like it's kind of the, what's that called? It goes in front of everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a really, I think, important piece of framing, honestly. Uh, and I, I think it's an excellent uh, way to sort of open up conversation about about your your book and what is joy and how it is that we can be melancholy and joyful at the same time, because um, I think it's it's really important. Nuance is something that's been lost in our our national, our cultural, international conversations about pretty much everything. So, mm-hmm. one of the things I've really I really appreciated about your book was the fact that you make space for their. To, for multiple emotions to exist at the same time as joy, mm-hmm. so um, I would love to uh, to hear more of your uh, more of your experience as as being melancholy and joyful at the same time. Let's talk about melancholy joy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so
3: I, gosh, I don't know when it was, maybe fifteen years ago. Um, that's kind of was my before I like took on the handle joyful Carla, um, I was um, I really identified as melancholy joy. Um, I couldn't actually get the Twitter handle for that. It was um, somebody already had it, which was pretty cool. Um, but it was something I really uh, had felt all my life. I remember an incredible quote from Camus about like recognize when it's melancholy and not sadness. Um, and uh, I'm not going to try to quote him. He's so, he's so be- He writes so beautifully. But basically, it was about take yourself for a walk and see the beauty. And I mean, I think to me he was talking about melancholy joy. Um, and I think an important, like I think why I want to kind of um, talk about this moment about being melancholic joy is because I, I actively worked to move away from being a melancholic joy person. Um, although that's the music I still like, (laughs) Um, you know, that kind of thoughtful sadness um, people who speak from the heart and talk about, you know, the struggles, but with there's this thread of joy that runs through it like this. um, And I use joy as an increase, an increasing of one's ability to feel, to act and to be part of uh, a collective or part of each other's life. So like, to me, that that combination of like sitting in the uh, sadness and the, or the discomfort or the hardships that we're all facing um, <laughs> in this apocalyptic world alongside of allowing joy to flow because it um, you know it has sharp edges and it's going to anyway so you might as well embrace it um, and I that's when I moved to thinking more about militancy and militancy to me is goes well well with it because it's about fierceness and about being unwavered it's unwavering um commitment to fight for a better world and it has to me more power than melancholy um however now we are in this pandemic world and um a lot of things have been truncated, our abilities to see people. I, I connect with people all over the world and being cut off from them has been really challenging. I mean, obviously, I get—I can connect via all the social medias, but it's pretty disembodied. Um, so, yeah, melancholy is just back in for, for full force. <laughs>
1: yeah, did that answer? I'm sorry, I felt like I conflated it all. Hey, I mean, <laughs> we, get, we conflate everything in the apocalypse. It's all together. Don't worry about that's
0: that. that. <laughs> all mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I think
1: it, that's part of the um, part of the beauty of all these conversations ar- around, um, you know, resistance and thriving, and um, you know, sort of getting getting the toxicity out. It's it's all. It's hard to, you know, have any, anything but one large conversation about all of that because it's all, all of the ways we talk about it are connected. Um, And your book, Joyful Militancy, tied the room together for me so well Mm -hmm. on all of these concepts um, because the, you know, we have these Um, cultural understandings of, like, joy equals happiness, sadness equals bad, Um, you know, militancy equals violence. And you really, like, turn all of these definitions and understandings on their head in this, like, absolutely beautiful and powerful way. And um, one of the first, like, the basic concept that was – really empowering for me was when the idea of resisting, um, idealism Mm -hmm. and the drive to, to like strive for idealism and the idea of striving for idealism is essentially being like an exercise in deficiency Mm -hmm. and sadness. Um, and so maybe, that was a lot to say, but maybe we could kind of just start with, I would love to know how you came to these Mm -hmm. concepts and Mm -hmm. how you came to this framing and, um, and how you developed this sort of line of questioning about joy and militancy.
3: Well, first of all, thank you so much. I'm deeply humbled that you, um, that the book resonated with you and, um, yeah, I love the way you talk about it. I, I, the book has such a life of its own and I love, talking to folks about it because <clears throat> they pull out different pieces and um, and I really appreciate that. And I also want to say that I co-wrote it with Nick Montgomery and um, like that book wouldn't be that book without him. And I think he would say the same thing. Like it was um, such an incredible collaboration of two worlds. Um, it was uh, like the act of writing the book is like we lived it. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to bring that to the forefront. Um, yeah, Joy, um, I think I need to start with Joy, and sorry for people who may be listening and have heard me talk about this before, but I think, um, uh, and I love that your name's Joy, P.S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, about, well, I guess it's 20 years ago because it was 2001, Um I uh, went through some personal like massive um, ruptures in my life Um, and I was trying to and I had a I have a fabulous he was six at the time kid and um, so alongside all that I just kept feeling I kept saying to my sister like I have a belly full of joy though I don't get it like this is like devastatingly hard the stuff I was going through and I'm not going to really share it right now it's like was three massive things that happened at the same time and then all around 9-11 so like Mm -hmm. you know as an empath I was already I was feeling like (laughs) so it was like four things um and during that time, I uh, had reread The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le, Le Guin, and she um, really uh, articulated joy in a similar way we do in the book. Um, like, there's so many quotes from it that, you know, joy joy is something you can't control. It, uh, it, it rises up and comes through you, and it helps you do more and be more, um, happy and pleasure might happen sometimes, but those things are, you know, frivolous. It's not really what you're after. Uh, you're after about finding that those ways to have joy. Like that, that's how she, you know, I don't know if you've read that book, but a lot of people think that book's really sad, but there's this like militant joy all the way through it. Mm -hmm. Um, and also I was in university at the time and, uh, studied Spinoza, um, who that's really the, you know, that's the kind of, origin of the philosophical current that's in the book it starts with his definition of joy and sad um, sadness is diminishes your ability to act and respond and then joy increases your ability to react and s- respond and feel um, we got rid of sad because sad is talk about a word that's really lost its me- original meaning more so than joy um mm. you know people don't want to People, when we interviewed people, they were like, are you telling me I can't feel sad? And it's like,
0: <laughs> you know,
3: um, so that's why you know, we worked really hard to come up with something else. And that's because it was, we were had that kind of joyful militancy and sad militancy thing going, playing on right. Spinoza's passions, which are joy and sad. Um, so we, some of the interviews, like with Silvia Federici and Gustavo Esteva, like they very much still use that language in the interviews with them. Um but otherwise, we decentered it and we came up with the term as a placeholder. We don't either of us. We don't love it about rigid radicalism as a way to talk about stagnation and um, ways in which we uh, lose our power as a collective and individuals. Um, and then the other thing is I I've worked with youth for years, um, creating alternatives to school and with a really centering a mandate of finding thriving in the everyday And um, so that kind of lived experience. And the main project was the Purple Thistle Center in Vancouver, which was a youth and arts activism center that was run by youth. Um, And I was uh, one of the co-directors alongside Matt Hearn. And um, it was just that it embodied it in this way, the way that the project ran itself. Um, And... I was interviewing uh, a scholar, um, Richard Day, for my my film, and he ended up interviewing me for something he was working on. And he I, he asked me about the Thistle, and I explained it. And he said, "That sounds like joyful militants to me." And that's the first time I had ever heard that term. Um, this was like 2010. I'm like what? <laughs> that's gonna be like ours thing at the Thistle, <laughs> you know it was like yeah. we had uh, we made screen prints and we had t-shirts <laughs> so i think it's really important to say that it came it sort of grew out of this fabulous project and nick was um i um co-founded a alternative to university called the Thistle institute and nick came to that and that's how we met and that was in 2011 um yeah i feel like i'm telling you like the you know the Detailed story. So let me just sort of swing back. So one of the things is that um, writing about – so now it's a really public conversation, but it was a public secret back in when we were first thinking about this book. Everyone kind of felt it and knew that these these, um, tendencies were happening in our collectives and spaces where people were feeling – probably the least amount of thriving and power in places where you should probably feel the most. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were hearing, like everyone was talking about it, but how do you write about that without replicating that? Right. Like it's, you know, so the, the big thing that we did and, um, academics to this day, write us and tell us, we wrote the book backwards, which I just, as a deep professional, I'm like, thank you very much. (laughs) 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 Um, you know, they really feel that rigid radicalism should have been chapter one. That's the problem. What are we doing about it? Let's point to all everybody and all the things that they do and why they suck.
1: And um isn't that rigid radicalism manifesting it already? Well, already? Right. So
3: funny. Right. So it, we were like, empire is the problem. And we use empire as a hold as a large meta systemic name for the hold all the oppressive stuff from capitalism to ableism to ageism, racism, all of it. Because, um, you know, you don't want to write that out constantly. And um, Hart and a, Gray did a great job telling us all what empire is. So we just sort of borrowed their idea. and um, And we start there. We start with like, you know, let's punch up. Let's actually look at the enemy. Let's look at all the things that actually diminish our abilities and our capacities to treat each other well and show up well. And then alongside that, um, and this, this is a thread that runs through all my work, um, I like to amplify and show as much as possible all the ways we can be otherwise and already are. So we're already autonomous. We're already doing radical stuff. Joy already runs through our projects. Um, and then we always have, resistance has always worked alongside the oppression, no matter what it is. you know. So the rise of industrialized schooling, there was school resistance right at the moment it started. From Tolstoy to Emma Goldman, they all created alternatives to schools for kids. Um, And I think that those erasures is part of Empire's job to show us that, you know, this is the way we've always been and resistance gets marginalized. So it was like, we used a theoretical, I guess an academic term would be like, we used affirmative theory as a way to talk about this. Um, and we invited in a lot of people. So it began with conversations. We we interviewed so many amazing people who really helped shape the book. Like the book went through very many different iterations. It took quite a few years to write because, like I said, we modeled it. Um, we tried. We attempted to model what we were talking about, that, and that solidarity has roots in listening, um, to trust each other, to be responsible for each other. So when I, we'd interview somebody and they would say, I don't agree with what you're saying at all <laughs> and here's why and you know and a lot of those times were um the folks we interviewed were um, BIPOC folks who pushed us as white people and we listened and so we shifted and um and we're really grateful and we hope that we did
1: well by them and um yeah, what does that answer?
3: That a <laughs> very long. Yeah, no,
1: it really does. And I, I'm interested in knowing what some of those shifts actually were. Like where where you, you know, thought you were on the right track and then were sort of nudged into maybe a different one. I mean, the biggest one is the sad,
3: the the binary we were doing, the joy sad thing. Like that was the, and that that came, um, that came through a lot of interviews, not just one, right? So I don't want to pinpoint just one person, but you know, and the more theoretical academic people we interviewed, they were, you know, they had, they've studied all the theory, the current that we use from Spinoza up to um, Deleuze and onward, um, uh, Foucault, Nietzsche, that kind of current. Um, They all had, you know they know it way better than me way ma- way 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 more right so when I would ask the question about sad military they they'd get it and they would they'd get the they'd get where it was coming from they knew they'd studied it they'd unpacked the language um obviously I'm speaking primarily of Sylvia Federici here <laughs> um, so you know but that yeah so we just um got rid of it entirely like personally we got rid of it in our writing in the book and um that's the main one. Um, it's hard for me. Like I said, um, IAS gave me a grant to pay for childcare so that me and Nick could write an essay about triple <laughs> <laughs> And so after about four interviews, we were like, this is so much more than an essay. Um, yeah. So it's hard for me to remember because it was, it was so, um, it wasn't backburnered, but it was a project that ran off of our desks, both mine and Nick was doing his PhD at the time, so it it took it took quite a few years to do. Yeah, so I don't remember every. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but the big one is the um, up, not using that binary of sad and joy. Yeah,
1: that's yeah. great resisting the binary. I'll let Sarah jump in before I before <laughs> I train of thought our <laughs> way down the track. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I was kind of interested. Maybe I misheard what you said, but because um, I really resonated with that again, I like that you did the kind of backwards approach. Um, but I still appreciated that you did kind of create this container um, called radical rigidity to kind of describe something that is, you know, kind of problematic in movement building and in you know our current discourse. That I do think, kind of personally, I think Stymie's, you know, solidarity and projects. Um, that we may be trying to do that are incredibly necessary right now. And I was telling Joy before the interview started, I was like, I feel like um, Carla put it in words that I have been trying to cycle around and spiral around and very (laughs) uneloquently critique for, like, months now. (laughs) So I appreciated that. Um, So I guess my question is, yeah, I was curious, you know, sort of how how you came to sort of define that container and how you kind of think that – you know, what are the things we can do to sort of like address it within ourselves and, you know, our own being and how we show up in movements?
3: Yeah, <clears throat> Nick and I just did a, um, actually it was like our first real event for the book. We we decided not to do that um, tour it or anything because we really, yeah, it's a book for other people to share. I love that collectives read it all the time. It makes me just squeal with joy. <laughs> um, but we were talking about how, like, where and this is like I think a new public secret that's happening right now is that um, kind of uh, the ways that we personally struggle um, and the way that we um, have issues around rigidity and purity and stuff and I think that a lot of times the what we're attracted to working on and talking about publicly is the thing that we ourselves are working on. And, but it can translate like we have it figured out. And I think it's like this weird gaslighting thing that we do to each other. So I'm like, I'm embracing that publicly now and talking more about where I struggle um, and and uh, inviting other folks to do the same and show our multitudes because we are a multitude. We're never we're one, that's empire telling us that we're stagnant and have one thing. Um, so for me like um I definitely struggle with purity i um I think that the way that I organize and work with people is pretty good, but I think that um like i like liberals will send me to like raging. <laughs> 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 throw the laptop across the room. And I want to like, you know, I'm pretty prudent. So I don't do this, but I want to like publicly call them all out, you know? So um, I'm trying to talk more about where I struggle, but my, and we talk about this in the book and and it's still really true is like, make sure you have people in your life that you can vent to and, and work, work on your, your own, uh, internalized um whatever right whether it's ageism racism transphobia, whatever it is that's getting in the way from you thriving and from you um enacting um solidarity in this deep way like work on it just work on it and probably most of it should be private in, in these loving friendship relationships uh, otherwise you're gonna cut yourself and other people off from each other um, But yeah, uh, I think, um, again, in in terms of that container, like uh, my work has been for the last 25 years had begun and has been rooted in working with kids. And so I am faced with, you know, anarchists talk about like no borders, but yet the biggest social border we have that we carry into most of our relationships is with kids we like and we lose out as adults we lose out so hard when we put that social border up because like um you know play is just essential to our thriving and uh learning and mentorship goes both ways like it almost feels contrived you know I find like people like I learned so much from my kids but like I mean when you are able to um just really sit in the discomfort of your power and privilege in a relationship like that and show up as best you can and be real and listen. It it helps. It just helps that it just flowers out into all your relationships. If you can work on that board, if you have children in your life, if you can work on those social borders and those that like I think one of the most sentiment, like it's 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 so, especially in North America, like that's that border between youth and kids is so massive right um Mm -hmm. and uh and it's in our it's in the philosophies like you know you try you try to upend it and people it's they're you know some of the most radical philosophers and thinkers and political theorists um come from a belief that to be an adult a responsible adult you have to be able to have reason (laughs) kids don't have that yet is what they say and they say it much more theoretical and philosophical and it's bullshit it's absolute bullshit right um it's the it's the reason why they're cut off from our adult life and we're cut off from their life in these really intense ways um so yeah I think that's why I'm able to um sit with that discomfort of my own purity (laughs) alongside of how I um I guess my praxis, like how I live my day-to-day life, is that as I'm faced with it with my kids
1: constantly. That's a really, I think, important perspective to keep in mind. That not only is is all of all of this work that we're talking about is in like resisting idealism and resisting rigid radicalism, is that. Um, kids are like the antithesis of rigidity. They are nothing but open receptors of, you know, everything and like interpreters and synthesizers (laughs) of everything. Um, and they, they actually don't know how to be rigid. They, (laughs) um, we teach them to be rigid Mm -hmm. instead of learning from them how not to be, um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really, a really powerful point you make there, because when we, when we do separate ourselves from the world of um, the kids live in, which is not having borders and not having these like sort of contrived containers and not having these, um, these conceptions of like what should be and what shouldn't be, and they're just sort of like, well, what is is, what isn't maybe still potentially is you know (laughs) and and um they haven't yet learned how to reason that out and that's like the beauty of it because reason kind of destroys exploration in a way and like destroys curiosity and I think a lot of what you go into in this in in your book is you know how to remain curious and how to remain like open and flexible and like how to um keep exploring capacities like kids are nothing but capacity explorers like totally. that's what they do <laughs> mm-hmm. so you know I don't have any kids I love kids I think they're the most interesting creatures <laughs> and I would love to spend time with kids more than I would love to spend time with most adults real talk. Yep. because they're open they're interested they're engaged like literally anything is possible to them you can tell them anything and they'll take it as truth Um, because it's coming from somebody who's an authority figure. And so it's like we can – we have an authoritarian oppressive system that leans into that and says we're going to tell you what's the truth and you're going to believe that it's always been the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, Or we can, you know, flip that on his head and listen to these kids who've Mm -hmm. literally just come from where we all go to when we die. You know, (laughs) we could be like, tell us what you know. Like let Mm -hmm. us listen to you. Mm -hmm. and how do you think we should be in the world mm-hmm. so um i guess like the question connected to that is as we're exploring capacity um and as we're like learning from the youth um what what do you feel like is has been um a an effective way to sort of assimilate and like synthesize your experience with working with youth into then working with adults mm-hmm. in a quote-unquote rational reasonable world that's actually right. kind of anything but right, right. <laughs> yeah so that's
3: the first thing right there you you kind of got to it is that um i mean it, it this is about how prejudice or or oppression or um ageism, in this thing, it works, right, is it um, makes you comment the relationship with a preconceived notion, right? So kids are flaky, they're going to not show up. Um, guess what? <laughs> it was way easier working with the collective of youth for years than it was when I did projects with the collective of adults. I mean, and there's a couple reasons why I think. Um, I mean, they don't have, these youth didn't, not all of them, a lot of them had really horrific lives um but you know we have we have a multitude of narratives going on as adults right like we're we gotta pay our bills we gotta do our taxes, you know and there's a lot of things there's usually if a an adult's on a collective they're doing 10 other things um but it's interesting because uh when I took that kind of lens off I realized that yeah like I, I mean I worked I've created I've worked on projects where I um like I always worked with adults and youth at the same time, so like editing a book or collaborating on a zine or whatever. And yeah, like seriously, the kitty cats that you have to herd—they were the adults. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So the other, yeah, and and I, we face this kind of like, um, just this bizarre uh, ageism all the time at the thistle. Like people would email. Like, you know, really long-term organizers or movement builders or um, organizations would email and ask if, you know, we'd like a workshop from them on how to, you know, run a collective. And I'm like, maybe you should all bring the collective, the youth, into your organization, how to run a collective that's like, does the level of output that we do and the thriving (laughs) that we do. Because, you know, like, they couldn't even conceive it. They couldn't even conceive that this youth collective had something to share and that yeah. instead they needed to actually learn from them, you know? And it's just, right. that was just strikingly obvious, the level of ageism that was happening. Like, And and it's almost like a cognitive dissonance because these, like the Thistle was this hub for years in Vancouver where every organization would come and make banners because we did everything, everything was free. It was like a info shop in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So... People would come in and make their banners, all their everything for an any kind of protest or march or event or fundraising thing. They can they you know, and the youth would train them how to use this stuff. And then there was so they saw that, and then can we come in and train your youth how to run a space? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> right? Um, so Yeah, it's uh, John Holt, who is like one of my favorite thinkers about this. He coined the phrase unschooling um, and he had um, these centers in New York for uh, kids who were super marginalized. Unfortunately, he named it the John Holt space, but whatever. (laughs) Anyways, but they were very like the thistle is very modeled after them. Um, And he had this quote of like the hardest thing as adults we have to do is to learn um, is to figure out how to trust young people. And and it's hard because we weren't trusted as kids. So that's like the piece. Um, and um, and the only I was talking to a youth who I worked with since she was thirteen till still to this day, and she's like twenty eight. She lives in she's Japanese, but she did a kiki delivery service. I e she moved to Vancouver when she was thirteen from Japan to be part of the thistle. Um, anyways, I was talking to her about it, and she was like. She thinks like that some of the adults who don't have those social borders is because they've never had social borders. Right. And so like, um, I watched my kids, like my youngest never had social borders, never was, never had an issue talking to adults. And so just and I was like, oh, I was like that as a kid too. I just totally about, unab- I didn't it didn't matter who it was. Mm-hmm. I talked to them like they were just I didn't the social border there. So it's interesting because I think it goes both ways. Um, that got really out of, out of my point is, I guess, is that you can't it's hard to train like it's not something you It can't give a workshop on it. Um, it's it's an embodiment thing. And um, I think, yeah. Sorry, I think I went all tangential and off track.
2: No, I think that that's that's right on point because yeah, one thing I was thinking about whether I was reading about the, you know, sort of radical rigidity and, like, how it does sort of come from a place of disempowerment, but then also, you know, our inability. To, you know, I was kind of similar as a kid. Like, I didn't have a lot of social boundaries. My mom has, like, so many funny stories about me saying, like, just ridiculous things to people in the store and telling them how I was going to be a paleontologist and, you know, all these different things and, like, just talking to them like they were my buddies. But um, it's almost like... I don't know. I know this is kind of a trite phrase, but I feel like we don't often reckon with the sort of hurt people, hurt people aspect of being a radical, of being, you know, called to do work in this world, Is it does come from a place of really deep hurt. And it's really easy if we're not checking ourselves to then kind of repeat those patterns on others. So I'm kind of curious what you see of that role of sort of self-reflection and maybe even psychology and healing as coming into this work.
3: Yeah, one of um, my uh, greatest mentors for listening and trusting youth is Helen Hughes. She's, um, she started a democratic free school here in Vancouver that was publicly funded, which is really unique um, in the se- early 70s, um, and uh, called Windsor House. And her thing was always like she would encourage us adults to go do our work, right? Like whatever that, whatever, you know if it's straight up therapy or, um, body work, different, mo- you know, whatever, whatever is going to help you not bring that into the room and into the relationship. So I've always, always appreciated that. Um, and I was really lucky to have that advice given to me early on, cause I definitely did that. Um, Yeah, I think, like, we talk about that in the book in terms of, like, the phrase burnout. Um, Like, to me, I, when someone would message me and say, I can't come because I'm burnt out, I would immediately know that was code for they were hurting. Um, Because, (laughs) um, because it's, it's true, right? Something's happened to hurt them. Um, Because when you're feeling alive and loved and cared for and that deep friendship and bonding, you have very rarely feel burnt out because as a working class person, I can tell you (laughs) when you work a shit job day in and day out, now that's burnout. Working in a collective to uh, create a cool space or do a action that should feel lively and joyful. And that really shouldn't, I mean, I'm not saying that that works not hard. It is, but compared to working a 40 hour a week shit job, that's 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 where burnout should be used <laughs> and so i you know i've always put a, cl- a class lens on it but for me i always took it as code and it's a safe way for people to take a break because we don't have i mean i think we we people especially black women in the states have really f- pushed for this idea of rest is fucking crucial right mm-hmm. for us to do to not mimic capitalism to not mimic empire in our relationships mm-hmm. and in our work so um solidarity to all of them who've done that work and really pushed for it. And it, so I've seen a shift. but back then when we were working on the book, it wasn't it wasn't valued. Um, you know, the people who worked the hardest had the most power. Um, you know you were held up. you were the celebrity in the town as like the professional activist. <laughs> um, you know <laughs> And so but to me, um, so, to, so to take a break, to um, step out and just stop was seen as like, you didn't care anymore. You weren't radical anymore. There, There's all these worries that were play- at play. So to s- burnout became this placer, placeholder to just, everyone's like, okay, yep, no, I get it. And then the person could take a break, but I immediately knew, oh my gosh, something's happened. Like with my people, I'd be like, I would just go check them out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... Uh, ask what was really happening and, um, with consent, obviously, but, um, and over and over and over again, it was, you know, something socially happened that hurt their feeling, that hurt them to the core, whether it came from like early trauma or something
1: just, yeah. It's such an important, um, idea to put to the front that, um, burnout in capitalism is, is not, possible in the same way in organizing spaces they come from different factors and we can't call them the same things like i think i totally understand what you're what you're meaning when when we say that we're too burnt out to be in an organizing space we mean we feel depleted for Mm -hmm. in an emotional and spiritual way that that community isn't providing for us in anymore and um that is, I mean, it, it kind of brings me to one of the, the biggest ideas that resonated with me after um, I got done reading Joyful Militancy was that communication and community are everything. And, you know, whatever the work that we're doing is, it actually doesn't matter if we're not able to be in community and communication with each other. And when somebody says I'm burnt out, the work is knowing what they mean by that, and asking them, and taking care of them, um, because that's how we build the systems of solidarity that are going to inevitably replace the systems of oppression that we're resisting. So, um, I, I'm. How has it? How did you notice? In your organize in your collective spaces like did you notice the impact of that approach as opposed to you know when someone says oh I'm burnt out and you're like well I guess we just can't call that person for a while when what that person really needs is for everyone to stop what they're doing and come over and hug them like hard yeah. and then they will feel the capacity again to be in that space um, like I, I'm I've not seen a, an a an organization work that way ever. I've not Mm -hmm. seen that put into practice. So I'm really curious how you saw the results of that manifest in your work.
3: Yeah. Um, it was just something that we just did. Uh, it's so interesting because I think, you know, it takes, it takes some confidence to do that. Um, I don't, I got it was something I, I, and I was able to do with some people sometimes, but um, I had to nurture it. I had to nurture the ability to reach out to somebody and because maybe they're gonna be pissed off. Maybe they're gonna be like, you're crossing my boundaries, you're triggering me more. Like I, I had a couple of young folks say that, um, and I'm so grateful for them um, because often it wasn't articulated, I just felt it. Um, so that the way that I cared, the way that I showed up was really triggering um, because their parents didn't do that and they didn't get it. Like they didn't, um, they appreciated it and they were like grateful and they kept coming back to the space. But um, it was triggering. Um, it was hard. It was like people, we, so many of us grapple with feeling unloved um like one of the things I used to always I used to be just be all like you're lovable you're lovable in all your all your awesomeness um and like people always like well, you know what's your number one advice for parenting and I would I would stretch this out to every everything is delight in people when they walk through the door always show delight hey <laughs> you know how are you doing um I don't know how many times I've walked into spaces and that doesn't happen. You gotta, you know, and it's, there's all kinds of reasons why. And I think think confidence is there. We're so scared of being rejected that, you know, someone walks in the door and we look away and we continue writing in our book or talking to the person we're talking to. And I'm a bit, like I'm super narrow, different. And so sometimes, and I'm super introverted and shy. So I had to really... (laughs) really work on this <laughs> so that it would be authentic you know because I think I can be performative about it um uh, socialize as a girl um grew up on a military base like I had all kinds of issues like I had to be had to show up in certain ways um but yeah this like um Matt had a term that I really liked, and it was like, go towards the trouble. So we never pretended that bad things were happening or shitty be- uh, energy was happening. Um, and uh, had um was part of a youth-run space in, uh, for Indigenous youth that was really similar to the thistle, So that's why we connected years ago. Um, and they had a phrase of, they, they called it anti-retreat. And it's <laughs> the same kind of thing, right? Like, No, don't let people retreat when they're being hurt and harmed. Get in, shut the fucking everything down. Close the space. Go get together and be there for each other. And sit in the discomfort. Um, And one of the things at the Thistle, like, we had a, it was a commitment. It was twofold. So we had, like, the main rule we had at the Thistle, besides no assholeism, was... um, (laughs) Uh, you couldn't sleep there because but that's not the project we were doing, right? Uh, it would get it would just get unruly if we all of a sudden had a people were sleeping there. and it was the deal we had with the landlord that we weren't gonna have people young people sleep there. <laughs> it, was, it was a multi-use space um, building. and um, every now and then a youth would be going through a really hard time at home or with roommates and they would move in because um, they all had the keys to the space. And they ran it. They literally ran the day-to-day operations of it. Um, And, um, you know, we'd always find out because it's hard not to. And we would never, uh, it would never be a big deal. We wouldn't um, out them. Uh, it It wasn't about being punitive. What we did, though, was what are we doing? We'd ask ourselves, what are we doing wrong that that person didn't come to us and ask to stay at our house? We're doing something wrong, actually, as a space of people who claim to love each other and care for one another. And that's what we would work on. We'd work at it from that angle. Um, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I could go on
3: forever about this project. So. <laughs>
1: I could listen to you go on forever about it. Honestly, it's like giving me so much life right now. Yeah. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs>
2: I was just going to say, for it, me, for listeners who are unfamiliar, maybe talk a little, I think you've given a really beautiful picture of what Thistle's work is, but especially maybe how it, is it still going on in that space, or did you have challenges with the pandemic, or, because I noticed you were kind of talking about it in the past tense. So.
0: Yeah,
3: um, yeah, so it, 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 um. there's a film that I co-directed called Common Notions Handbook Not Required, it's basically chapter three of Joyful Militancy, uh-huh. <laughs> Um and it was founded in 2000 by Matt Hearn, uh, who has written extensively on um, youth autonomy and youth uh, liberation and de-schooling and unschooling and did all kinds of cool projects and continues to. Um, and he got together with six young people who were Eastbound kids, um, which is where we live, and who weren't thriving, who hated school or were not at school or dropped out or doing alternative to school. Um, And he sat down with them for like a year. They met once a week and he started with, he got them to write a letter of like, what are you doing when you're thriving, but doing, creating and learning with other people? Um, Answer that question and let's make it happen. Um, He really wanted to, he was really hoping they'd come back and they'd open a cafe together because he wasn't an artist himself. But they all came back with like, it was all art based, it was like making scenes or photography. So they just slowly built the space that did that. Hmm. Um, So yeah, and I got involved because my kid went there at age 11. And I kind of followed him and (laughs) and the rest is history but um in 2015 we closed for a a few reasons um one is we lost a lot of our funding and at the core of the project was for us not to be this you know replicated institution and I think we could have like fought for funding in different ways and changed the you know maybe not have been as political and radical so that was like kind of the 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 real reason why it closed but alongside and I think just as important is that the project worked like so all of a sudden there was like a bunch of youth who were starting their own spaces based on their interests and their projects and we were kind of in their way like we had the social capital in the city we were getting the fund you know the little bit of funding left we were getting um and it was you know kind of taking the Quakers ethics of like sometimes you just gotta lay it down right you just gotta stop and I'm a big big fan of quitting I'm a big big fan of failure and like being and and embracing it and, and moving on, and um, I think it's a beautiful story how it ended, and uh, a great great lesson of not replicating capitalism and systems of profit. Um, yeah, so they you can Google Purple Thistle Center, Vancouver, Canada, um, Matt Hearn, Common Notions, my name, and it will all come up.
1: <laughs> That's really awesome, and I think that speaks. Um, really perfectly to the idea and, or the sort of the solution in, in a sense, one of the solutions I've, I've seen to resisting this sort of goal oriented achievement oriented mentality of capitalism is to, you know, embrace things ending and embrace things, um, seeming to you know doors seeming to close and um, embracing you know schisms <laughs> yeah. um, as they as they emerge because that's essentially what life is it's like a, a constant opening and closing and a constant you know roller coaster of emotion and energy and activity and not so when you're um, when you're talking about all this it's like essentially what's coming to my mind the ideas that are that come to my mind have to do with the sense that like all all of the things that we think of as real you know money jobs economy government borders all this stuff is stuff that we've contrived we've made up and the real work is um what you're talking about with building community building like space for creativity and learning and education that makes sense to the people doing the creating and the learning mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and you know we I, ta- I do a lot of ranting on the internet you know i do a <laughs> lot of like talking about shit that's wrong and I maybe mm-hmm. don't do enough talking about shit that's right, but I feel like the, what, <laughs> the work that you're talking about here is the shit that's right, that I mm-hmm. want to, like, see happening in the world and in my own self of, like, how do I embrace, mm-hmm. um, you know, flexibility? How do I resist rigidity? How do I, like, stop being so goal-oriented and start being more um, empathic and... Uh, because, you know, empathy is the enemy of oppression. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, I guess the question in in all of that statement is, uh, I guess, how do you see this work that you're doing already manifesting in other um, communities? Because obviously there's no such thing as an original idea or thought and, you know, We come to these things the way that we come to them, but it's not that they're not happening. So in your research and in your (laughs) learning, like, how have you seen these sort of hopeful spaces um, emerging already in the world Mm -hmm. that we live in? And not just in your own personal Mm -hmm. um, town, but I'm curious because that's the kind of shit that gives me life (laughs) right i mean just the outpouring of mutual aid during the pandemic right is
3: the Mm. most beautiful thing to look at um i was lucky enough to um be asked by marina citron at the start of the pandemic to um work with uh mostly women from around the world on a book called pandemic solidarity where we interviewed folks who were doing mutual aid so like people in rojava um, iraq turkey I mean, yeah, Taiwan, like everywhere, Um, Argentina, all of Turtle Island. And um, so I just really can't recommend that book enough. Uh, It it will help you feel all kinds of hopefulness. It's from Pluto Press. Um, So that's like immediate. And, you know, and we know this. We know that when disasters happen, um, empire loses its hold, right? Things... We, um, we've we been tra- trying to talk about Empire as like music, like sound. So it plays a really loud sound and it's the loudest song. And we're, it's always pumping. It's coming through even our headphones all the time. And we have all these radical, beautiful, hopeful songs trying to compete with it. Um, and when disasters happen and when stra- um, stra- tra- tragedies, the Empire song goes out and we're left with this, melody and harmony and beauty of so much music um and that is being researched from Kropotkin to Rebecca Solnit's book Paradise Built in Hell which really points to this you know from Katrina to the fires in San Francisco how that happened um Scott Crowe's book definitely goes deep into the the um, how people show up the hope the level of solidarity that happens when empire song is shut the fuck up right Mm -hmm. So, so alongside that um we can work to hear our songs and our music and our each other's beauty by listening and I think it really comes down to listening I always talk about how solidarity has its roots in listening because um it's oh it's happening so there and I'm a speech impediment and when i try to say names that i don't say all the time i have i can't pronounce them so there's all kinds of cool autonomous zones around the world that are doing this all the time and just type in autonomy zones or um that kind of thing and they'll come up like there's the zad in uh paris or in france um yeah they're just everywhere and they are i just nerdily go and look at them constantly because they really help um yeah Anything that, like, kind of mutual aid-esque, because to me, mutual aid is the antidote of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, I don't know if that was helpful, but...
1: <laughs> no, it was, and it actually, it reminded me that there was a second a piece to that question that I wanted to um, bring up, which is that, you know, indigenous communities and cultures um, mm-hmm. have have actually been embodying all these yes, concepts always. Yeah, um, yeah. the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I we're another you know social border that we have is be, between you know the so-called between the, the communities uh, and the people that our nation genocided, mm-hmm. um, and and in Canada as well, you know, yeah. and this entire continent is full of, um, you know, people who are you know not who don't have their larger community because the the empire genocided their communities, but in what they still have, even though they're often forced onto reservations and into these very controlled Mm -hmm. spaces, even within those controlled spaces, they are, they still create a much more community based and a much more mutual aid based way of life. That is a threat to the empire Mm -hmm. Um, because if if the empire allowed um, its subjects to see how those who aren't controlled by empire are living (laughs) (laughs) much more successfully um, and if we weren't um, marginalizing and targeting and you know silencing those people then we would see that they have it right Mm -hmm. and um, so I have you I know we've we've talked about you know how communities ah uh, who are not from settler origins, not from white origins, have um, pushed back on some of your framing in your book, and so I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, what their um, response has been to your conclusions.
3: Right. I mean, uh, that's a yes thanks for bringing that up the settler indigenous um divide is real and uh it's definitely something that i really um not really talk a ton about publicly but is the is the solidarity work i do in a really profound deep way um in in the city is uh creating ways to um any resource I have from whether it's uh, working on reparation projects for housing to um, funding using charity status to get funding for a language program and everything in between. Um, So I think that's like one way that a settler can show up, but um, you know, I, people, the book elicits feelings. Um, People either hate it or there seems to be no in between. I mean, I think, I think some people are kind of like meh about it, but I think overall it's like, Um, people like really it really spoke to them or they didn't like it at all and I think that's great that's that's like that's kind of what you want with your art I think Um, uh, I haven't uh, overall it's been pretty great in terms of especially indigenous folks really liking it and black black, I mean it's yeah um, you know this is where ideology comes in right because then it doesn't ideology doesn't discriminate (laughs) Like, uh, so um, there's uh, some ideological streams um, that uh, really want a prescription, that really uh, want a rule book. They really want the roadmap up front. They think Marx had it all figured out. <laughs> Not all Marxists. Um, and um, <laughs> they they, uh, they don't like the book. Um, they're really they're really pissed that we don't offer a solution on how to deal with rigid radicalism even though we all know those of us who get it are like
1: <laughs> but that would be rigid
4: <laughs>
0: Right. <laughs> would well, be yes. would be... it's also
1: full of multiple solutions it's yeah just not one. <laughs> yeah there's pathways I, I like to
3: call them pathways yeah. we yeah. affirm yeah. and hold up other ways of being um so yeah i haven't like I wouldn't I couldn't yeah that's a it's a challenging conversation because it comes down to individuals right like so all kinds of folks from variety of different backgrounds lo, the book resonates with from um, you know like um I have a few friends of like you wrote a Taoist book I'm like thank you for really seeing me you know and I, you know <laughs> like I don't know if you know nick wouldn't that wouldn't resonate with him in the same way with me i'm like yes it totally did i totally was thinking taoism the whole time right (laughs) like um but you know that might offend some people out there like
2: oh god (laughs) Yeah. yeah i just kind of lit up when you said that do you have time for one more question maybe or sure yeah okay One thing I think about a lot, at least with my own personal life, is how my spiritual life really does influence my politics. But also, I think, especially in a lot of materials left, i.e. Marxist organizing spaces, and with good reason, there's a lot of skepticism about articulating that dimension of our work and that dimension of our lives. But I do often think that it's something that, because we've left it out of these spaces and left it out of the conversation, that we're maybe really missing opportunities to do a lot of this work on a deeper level. So I'd be curious if that's maybe something that resonates with you or if like there's a spiritual dimension to your politics that you would be interested in exploring?
3: Um, yeah, I, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of like a, you know, I mean, philosophically, I'd probably um, identify as a hopeful agnostic. Um, and um, because I'm, I'm just, I just, I'm not certain about anything. I mean I just I find atheists bizarre. <laughs> like I'm like, yeah. that is the exact <laughs> same position.
0: <laughs> yep.
3: That's the opposite of the coin. Exactly. It's, it's a certainty. It's so bizarre to me. Um you know like I always think about where Einstein got with the question or with the answer. I guess it, it I love that I called it a question. But it was—I guess it, would, it was a question for him. But like, where he got with this whole thing was that he was like he couldn't scientifically reduce love down to a thing. So therefore, for him, there has to be a spiritual element because love is so big. So mm. it's it's otherworldly. It's like galaxies upon galaxy. It's beyond the universe, right? And I love like that. That's where. Uh, probably really early on in my life, I was like, yeah, that, that's me, <laughs> right? Like I, you know, and I think he talked personally about the love he had for his mom. I mean, it's just a beautiful piece. And he was a socialist. So he I, he really grappled with this. He was a scientist and, you know, everything can be reduced down to a fact and uh, through experimentation and, and finding solutions. And then he was a socialist. So he was influenced by those ideals. Um, yeah. So, uh, and alongside that, I think, uh, you know, what we're talking about is dogmatic or religion and stuff. And it's just it's another form of ideology and it can upend and cause problems and divisions in, in our movements and spaces. And um, so I, my spirituality and has always been a bit private. But um, one of the things that I'm interested in, and, and we're seeing this more and more, a huge proliferation of this, is finding ways to celebrate more. Joy moves when we celebrate and do ceremony together. And I, I don't mean this in an appropriative way. Like I don't, don't, don't appropriate other cultures and do so. but
0: mm-hmm.
3: we have, we all have those ancestral memories of how we did ceremony, like part of empire and individualism and liberalism's job was to tear apart our social bonds so that we couldn't we wouldn't rely on each other so we couldn't revolt um and one of the things where ceremony and celebration sits mostly in whiteness and in colonialism is in the individual right so birthdays graduation um or or het normative coupling and now we've it's moved into lgbtq coupling but it's still just coupling right and so the ceremony it's really rare um and and like i said it's it's we're seeing more and more of this. And every everybody we spoke to for Joyful Mill and see about where they saw joy the most was in those moments. I mean, and the Zapatistas talk about it, this in the best way, right? Like, if you don't center uh, coming together to celebrate and have ceremony, you are not going to thrive. And if you're just going to be miserable, then what's the point? Um, Yeah. So spirituality sort of intersects all that stuff with me. Um, I'm really, I actually was like, I'm not going to write any more nonfiction. It's so exhausting. I'm going to just move (laughs) to fiction. Um, And I, um, but one of the things that's running around in my head, I went to Prague in 2019 and I, uh, which is to me like, this like microcosmic of this conversation because of course they were, uh mar- you know they they were part of the Soviet Union for a long time and they had this like heavy heavy atheist world but then there it's like Prague right it's like the birth of all occult and spirituality and tarot card and oh, it's just this like yeah and then of course it's you know what it's like this weird capitalism because it's. Um, you know, there there's all these values still that are left over from the Soviet. You know, so I saw it all. Like it was just bizarre, and I was like, got really nerdy about how I'm finding that spirituality, whether it's tarot or um, radical uh, Christianity or whatever. It start is getting kind of captured by capitalism, and we're really it's really getting like, you know, because there's this impasse with kind of traditional big L left of like keeping it off, keeping it out. And so it's, where is it going to go? Well, capitalism will happily eat it up and sell it back to us, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm just, I'm really interested in it and trying to figure, figure out how to um, like consumer, like there's a consumption obsession with spirituality that's happening Um, and celebrity. And there's a celebrity of the people who are selling it. I think terrible quite frankly yeah so I don't yeah you can see I'm still it's a new it, I'm, I'm marinating in it I, I'm not sure <laughs> I'm, I'm super uncertain but Prague ignited this whole nerdy like
2: what is going on with
3: the world <laughs> you know
2: yeah. uh, that is a conversation I would love to continue with you
3: yeah Thank sure yeah. <laughs> that
2: is, that's so much in my wheelhouse <laughs>
1: But um, nice. Yeah. Before we yeah. let you go, I do want I do want to ask you the question that we also we like to bookend our our uh, segments. <laughs> we've been forgetting to to ask the final question the last couple of times, but because we get that. so involved in this, like let's talk about all the everything. And I really love being able to zoom out now that we've kind of like. Dived all the way into <laughs> all of these ideas, of, you know, about community and um, you know systemic um, oppression and rigid radicalism and everything like that. Um, what is giving you hope? Right? <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like it's very important to kind of come back yeah. around to that, so that we can continue to to build joy and celebrate and to to you know be in community with each other
3: yeah thanks um it's very melancholic uh just need to preface it with that Mm -hmm. um I mean my my youngest kid brings me the most hope he's just so uh um I learned so much from him. He's 17. He's trans mask. Uh, his quote in um, Joyful Militancy probably gets tweeted the most, which is, I don't need adults to have uh, to empower me. I need them to stop having power over me. Mm-hmm. Um, he was nine years old when he said that. He ta- He's taught me so much about power, about really knowing yourself and being your authentic self and how, um, like, I mean, he's a teen during a pandemic who's trans-mask and has been cut off from all kinds of things, and he finds a way to thrive every day. And so that it's just a little tiny thing. I'm just like, oh, my God. And then I'm also um, super inspired by, um, yeah, the re- the indigenous resurgence around the world and um, and just all the stuff that's happening uh, everywhere, everywhere. Um, that's uh, that's tearing down literally tearing down this racist statues but like tearing down some of these walls that, that have been built and designed to uh cause suffering suffering for so much and um yeah I have a lot of hope for that I have a lot of hope for the fact that more and more people are seeing how terrible empire is how terrible capitalism is um yeah I think, and I wanted to say that, um, Joya, I listened to one of your songs. I hope, I'm going to say this because I hope you play it. It's the one about lo- love yourself. Um, oh. I mean, I just loved it. I was like singing along to it. But really, the ending with the little kid, like, what is that? That is the most beautiful
1: thing. I think, you. I think you should play it. I'm not going to tell you what to do with your show, but... <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I take requests. And honestly, (laughs) that little girl is she I'll tell you the reason why I needed to include her opinion in that Mm -hmm. song is because she uh, her mother is a fantastic writer and poet and activist. And um, and they. We're over at my apartment, and I have a little typewriter. And then I was like, "If you want to like type on my typewriter, go for it." And she was, I think, eight at the time. And I didn't see what she typed at first. And it, she typed something, and she went away. And and I, when I went and looked, um. She had written uh, Love Yourself, I Love Myself, You Love Yourself, Love Yourself. It was just like oh, over – it was yeah. it was like this very pure – and I had already written this song and she had never heard this song and mm-hmm. I was like – and I had just recorded it and it was going to be for this new album, one of the last songs on my sort of post-divorce closure album, like dealing with the trauma of my ex and all this. And I was just like, oh my God, all right, who, who do I need – Whose voice do I need more on this? You know, my voice is all over. But London, what do you what are you talking about when you when you say love yourself? Because clearly you have an idea. And her answer, you know, and I and I I texted her mom and I was like, hey, can you get um, can you get just ask London what she means? Like, what does it mean to love yourself? And that like brilliance, <laughs> that like. Perfect, what 30 seconds of brilliance is what just sort of popped out of her little mouth. And so I'm like, why do we not have kids as teachers in all mm-hmm. the schools? Why are mm-hmm. we not asking them these questions? Because they know. Mm-hmm. They know better than we know. So um. I will, of course, include that song. Um,
3: <laughs> yeah, I want that that, that just gave me hope. Too. Those are the things that give me hope. So thank you for putting that out there. Um And then are you going to play the other song that I suggested? Because I wanted to give it a shout out. Can I do that? Definitely. Yeah, we are. Um, Yeah. So I um, uh, do a podcast with Eleanor Goldfield called Silver Threads. And we're part of uh, Channel Zero Network, which is a group of podcasters. And we support each other by having each other's jingles and, um, I don't know, there's skill sharing and all kinds of stuff. We support each other. And one of the podcasts on there is from um, a rapper and musician named Time. The podcast is called Time, oh my God, Time Talks, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, which is one of my favorite podcasts. I recommend it. And um, he uh, created this album called Nighthawks at McCoy's with um, Maudlin Magpie and A Thousand Vows. And I recommend the whole album because I, you know, you'll get this, I think, joy and you know, you curate something; it's it's meant to listen to in its entirety. Um, so I really recommend the whole thing. But the one the one song that really stuck out for me is every line in it I have felt and thought of, and the melody and the singing from um, Modern Magpie will just make you cry. But it's called um, "I've Always Loved the Monsters," and it is a, a melancholic joy song. And I think it's a good song for this moment. Um, yeah, so shout out to Time and their, them all. Awesome.
1: That's, That's a great place to, I think, tie a bow on this yeah. uh, conversation that has lifted me up all the way, I hope you know. Me too.
3: It's so nice yeah. to meet you both. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's great to meet you, Carla. Thanks for doing the work you're doing. Yeah,
3: yeah, thank you. And if you ever want to talk more, I'm seriously, I want to talk about the spirituality. <laughs> <left>. yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Left is- it's all yeah
1: let's do it yeah and 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 Eleanor as well actually I would love to have both of you on and just like have conversations with the two of you about all these things
3: yeah yeah that'd be fun
1: yeah yeah and vice versa
3: we have to yeah it's so funny because it's you do so much hey it's so hard to (laughs) I know I don't know if Eleanor told you but our our show was supposed to be on the road it was a video going to be a video but wow. pandemic yeah um, and so we we
1: just she's she says we're still going to do the video one but we'll I believe that she is and she's yeah. excellent she did the videography for one of my music videos and yeah. um yeah. knocked it out so quick like she's just so skilled at yeah staff,
0: so.
3: totally <laughs> i so glad to meet you both from um from through her yeah and yeah have
1: a lovely day Yeah, I told her I was changing my name and she was like, you have to read this book. (laughs) So I'm so glad. I feel like it's been yet another affirmation of that decision um, that that it resulted in meeting you. So thank you so much.
3: Yeah, thank you.
5: took my sight, so much to do, so many to listen to, but I'm just trying to be in the moment and show love to you. I mean, how many breaths are we guaranteed? One second your heart could be pumping, the next it might not be. I'm just trying to keep seeing you blinking. I want to see you keep breathing, never stop is what I'm thinking. Are we just mammals, or is love real? Or do animals know what love is and humans got a bad deal? Is it human nature to hate you or want to be a neighbor? Would I kill for food or kill others to save you? These are the questions I ask myself, where the crickets in my eternal soul, or just a carbon thing? These are the things I ponder. I'm sorry, my mind wanders. We're we'll taught to love my size, but I've always loved the monsters.
4: This blood orange sky and Rorschach Blossom mind returns from.
5: What? With- I really even feel? If it wasn't for these eyes, would I see myself steal? If it wasn't for these ears, would I really hear the lies? If it wasn't for this tongue, would it taste us salt from your cries? If it wasn't for this nose, would I smell the leaves of the seasons? If it wasn't for these words, would we even have a reason? What's a body but a symbol? What's a word but a symbol? What's a symbol but an attempt to understand reality? What's reality but a misunderstanding? Without instinct, chemicals and blood were stranded. Take the hand of my ancestors to my family tree.
0: I admire the tumors, broken branches. Golden leaves. Ask my grandmother where the fruits are.
5: She smiles and points at my heart it says where the roots are. I start digging for the truth, my identity, and me. I find a coffin in the roots inside of me. My face is all I see.
4: This blood orange sky and rosebud blossoms returns from.
2: Talking about you know sort of struggling to articulate all these different spiritual aspects of the work we do as radicals something she said that really struck me was the whole idea of like because we've left spirituality out of these radical organizing spaces it's going to get sucked up by capitalism and you can see that in so many ways whether it's like the trend with like you know tech companies incorporating mindfulness to get more productivity out of their workers or like even the fact that like you know, um, not saying that there aren't some really awesome radical witches out there, but there's also now, you know, there's all these, like, there's, like, a bougie witch store that's, like, a 10-minute drive from my house where you can buy, like, herbs and crystals and, like, beautiful shit. But it's, like, kind of, like, it's it's a bougie witch store. <laughs> and I'm, like, you know, like, to me that's, like... Um, just is such an interesting indication of like why it actually is quite an essential project, whether or not Marxists want to hear this. And I say this as someone who strongly like, looks to Marx for a lot of my, you know, understanding of how the world works. Um, So definitely no disrespect to my Marxist friends, but like, we need to be talking about this and incorporating into the space. Otherwise it will be, you know, taken over by capitalism as capitalism takes over everything. So, and we're just going to be left um, arguing with each other about who has the best politics because they read the most theory. And that's cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, like, Carla's work really resonates with me because it, it does take it out of the theoretical space. Um, it takes, you know, it takes resistance out of the theoretical space and, and you know, it translates it into actual, you know, collective building and community building, which can't happen as theory. (laughs) It has to happen as actuality. And actuality is messy. Reality is messy. Theory is very, it can be very neatly organized, but reality is chaos. And if we can't get comfortable with, um, you know, the, the, the non-rational ways to make sense of chaos, um, you know, like being in touch with like the larger connectivity and witchiness of everyone and everything um, that has absolutely nothing to do with the completely made up concept of money and power, um, you know, then we we really do start to see um, that, mentality shift become transformative like I didn't get it we I there were so many things I wanted to ask Carla um and bring up but one thing that she talks about later or that she and Nick talk about later in the book is joyful transformation and like what does you know the way I think is like what does that mean it it means um you know rejecting the co-opting of all of the things that connect us um like our sexuality our gender our skills our passions you know everything is co-opted if you have a passion how do you market it if you have a um an identity how do you brand it you know what if fuck all that you know, what if you can just have an identity that's constantly changing, and you can have passions that manifest in all different ways, um, and you can recognize that the systems that um, that co-opt them are literally all based on us believing in them.
2: <laughs> well, it's kind of gosh, it's so many different thoughts there, but. One thing that's spring to mind is also sort of the irony of, like, this focus on good politics that Carla talked about in, you know, leftist or orga- radical organizing spaces or whatever terminology you want to use. It is sort of reproducing that that same sort of capitalist thing of, like, how do you put it in a box? How do you, like, draw those lines around it? And, like, again, getting back to that idea of, like, you know, I don't care what spiritual practices resonate with people, but I think when you do have a slightly bigger conception of the world than just the material reality in front of you. It gives you space to have a little grace with yourself, more grace with others, and also recognize when you're responding to things from a place of ego. Like, am I out there on Twitter calling people out all day long because I think it's actually doing anything to help marginalize people? Or am I doing it for as a project to big up myself? I think the answer to that is usually fairly transparent to those looking from the outside. But um, I do think that, like, again, that, like, fear that we sort of have, which I do want to be sensitive to historically, especially, you know, Judeo-Christian dominator culture. There is a historic reason why leftists and radicals are, you know, hesitant to incorporate spirituality. But then that's also rather, like... um, comes from an assumption that the only spirituality that exists are those kinds of spiritualities, and that is not true, so that was a lot of different threads, but
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we've been following all the threads. I think that um, it's important to follow them all so that we can, you know, see that they all actually lead yeah. to the same source, which you know, it is connectivity. You know, we can call it spirit, spirituality if we want, but it's really connectivity. What we're getting in touch with when we talk about spirituality is, like, the connectedness of everything, which is palpable and visible. And, you know, we can, we can see it and we can feel it um, as organic beings growing out of an organic um, planet. <laughs> like we're we're all connected to it and each other and there there's nothing woo-woo about that it's it's transparent and it's um what's so tangible you know so um you know all of these concepts that Carla is talking about All of this work that she's talking about with, um, you know, listening to the youth and um, stop trying to overpower the youth and instead let them have their power. Um, And how do we how do we find um, joy or how do we how do we embody joy even when we're not feeling happy? All of these things like the answers lie within connectivity and we can call it spirituality if we want, um, yeah. and not within religion, but within connectivity. And religion actually destroys connection in many ways. Um, maybe it created connection in older days, in you know centuries ago. It was good for creating connection, but these days it just destroys connection and creates you know walls and um, and restrictions. Whereas if we, if we just like break out of all the structures, out of the, the nation structure, out of the religion structure, out of like the nuclear family structure, if we break out of all of that, then we see that at the core of everything is connectivity. Um, we could call it love, you know,
0: that's
1: what, that's what connectivity is. Staying connected is love. And, um, and it sounds so fucking woo woo when I say that, but like all you need is connectivity doesn't have quite the same ring to it, I
0: guess. <laughs>
2: all, you <need> is- <laughs> all you need is connectivity. Da, 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 da. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, to me, you know, when I think of connectivity, for me, it's about like sort of connecting with something bigger, with the divine. And I have no problem using those fucking words, but I have this yeah. imaginary army of online materialist marxists that will come at me for saying that but that that presupposes that people are even listening to this podcast they are they're listening fiercely and they're angry (laughs) they're so angry at me first using words like spirit and divinity but anyway the point being that i lost my point what was my point oh my god i totally had a point oh i remember now okay So, like, another thing, you know, talking about connectivity and all of these structures that we take as inevitable, I think when we approach the world with this sort of hard materialist, like, we need to define things and put them in boxes, we create those same kind of limitations around the work we can do in the world and how creative we can be, because we have co-created literally everything that exists, Like, everything that humans have thought that exists, even the way we conceive the so-called physical world and planet we exist on, that only exists within human understanding. Like, Mm -hmm. the way the planet actually is could be completely different. We don't know. We have literally no way of knowing. So, like, when you kind of give yourself up to that, I feel like you can kind of open yourself up to be a lot more creative with how you fucking, you know, um, you know, how you can create a world that actually works for everyone or at least works for more people than it does right
1: now yeah like we're essentially stopping the world from working for everyone like that's what that's what the systems we've created do like you know I was talking with my neighbor about this yesterday how we create this cage that we have for ourselves like we've we've created a cage where we have to go to jobs and we have to separate from our communities and we have to Focus on our individual goals and our in- individual achievements, and we completely lose track of the fact that our literal only purpose in being on this earth is to be on it, and you know our only purpose of um, existing is to exist and to thrive, and anything we do that keeps us from thriving and existing, is, is um, contrary to the world that we the earth that we live on which is growth it like is nothing but growth so when we stop growth and we like constrict ourselves and we cage ourselves you know no of course we're going to become depressed and anxious we're doing the exact opposite thing that this earth that grew us wants us to do so yeah. like well I'll be happier if we spend more time in community and connection and less time in our individual jobs, and in our individual spaces, I say from my individual space.
2: Yeah, well, again, the paradox that we all existed. But, yeah, also that makes, you know... That makes me think of, like, you know, we also need to be careful that the solutions that we come up with aren't another cage and aren't just replicating the same systems, which is why I appreciate Carla's work because I think it points us to... Maybe it's not a prescriptive roadmap, but it points us to a way of being, which I think is more important than a, like to-do list of how we should, you know, do radicalism or how we should solve X problem. It's, like, really it comes down to, like, the way of being in the world. And I know that's too squishy for a lot of people, but whatever, you'll get it eventually. It's not my problem.
1: And maybe <laughs> already have gotten it and just aren't, aren't like, accepting yeah. that we've gotten it. Because it is, like, joy, the, the thing that, you know, we didn't go into the specific definitions of everything, but the, the definition of joy... That I was that I pulled from uh, joyful militancy, and you know, in addition to um, capacity, is um, that joy is a state of being, and we can be we can exist in a state of joy and be happy or not, Um, we can exist in a state of like constantly opening and constantly. Um, creating capacity for change and effectiveness, um, affectiveness, I should say, (laughs) and uh, as well as effectiveness. Um, And that, you know, it isn't, it isn't, um, it isn't something that we have to go find. Like, we all are in a state of of joy all the time. If we allow ourselves to be, we create, um, restrictions that keep us from that state. And, um, and yes, we have, we see, you know, capitalism co-opting all of our sort of, um, pathways, you know, whether it's mindfulness that keeps us present or, um, you know, human connection of love that it turns into you know state-sponsored marriage um you know we see how all those restrictions are in place and all we have to do is like stop creating more restrictions like stop holding ourselves back because we are powerful extremely powerful that's why the, the the system has to has to work so hard to disempower us,
2: <laughs> right? Yeah. So, and it's never quite been able to completely. Exactly.
1: On that note, let us tell our our wonderful our wonderful what the folk fam how much we appreciate the actual folk out of all of you, and uh, and and we really hope that you've been enjoying this entire year of uh, of our words in your ear holes and our guests in your homes. And we hope that you'll, you'll keep, uh, you'll keep listening. We're going to take a break next, uh, for the next week, or we're going to skip a single What the Folk Wednesday.
2: Yeah. Which is already every other week. So I guess we'll be about a month.
1: <laughs> we're going to miss you while we're gone. But in the meantime, please catch up on our old episodes and let us know if you have any guests that you would like to see us have on and let us know, um, if, there's you know anything we're doing great or that you would like to see more of or less of or whatever because uh, we're having a great time doing this but we have even more fun when there's a whole lot of other people out there listening and uh
2: and picking up what we're putting down man <laughs> if you're a, yeah and if you're a musician or you know some musician is doing some cool work send them our way too we love featuring artists on the podcast especially independent artists because we all need to lift each other up right now so exactly exactly we don't all have a publicist let what the folk be your publicist (laughs) (laughs) all right y'all we'll see you in i guess maybe early july yeah
1: we'll be back we'll be back soon we love you all stay joyful stay strong stay fucking resisting stay radical stay joyful
0: You can love yourself all night long Keep going all day and you won't go wrong Give yourself a hand cause you're the one who you belong with Go ahead and love yourself all night long You don't need somebody else to give you love Everything you need fits in a huge sized glove So give yourself a round of Everything you ever dreamed of And you can love yourself
6: taking care of yourself making sure you're acknowledging your feelings like you could be sad and if you're not acknowledging that you could kind of feel more sad and it wouldn't you would never get past that and if and taking care of yourself is like taking care of your personal self and taking care of your hair and your health and and being careful of what you do with your body. What do you do to love yourself? I, I pay attention to my needs. I mean, when I'm hungry, I, I eat. <laughs> when I am bored, I'll, like, read. Or when I'm feeling things, I'll do something to help that, you know? But not if I'm happy. <laughs> of course, I don't want to make happy go away. <laughs> That's what it means to love yourself.
0: What the
1: Folk is co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. Our guest on this episode has been Carla Bergman and featured music has been I've Always Loved the Monsters by Time, Maudlin Magpie, and A Thousand Vows and Love Yourself by Joy Damiani. Until next time, we hope you'll take wonderful care of yourselves, even better care of each other, and punch some Nazis.
0: Bye.